You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I'm your host, Miles Lassiter, founder and investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired, to be a founder, or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Jeff Anderson is co-founder and co-CEO of Full Cycle Bioplastics. He is a serial entrepreneur and brings a wealth of experience in climate tech industry and has served in multiple executive roles in clean energy, waste repurposing, and venture capital. He also serves as an advisory board member to a Bay Area biotech company. Jeff completed his master's thesis on economics and BHA production and is the co-inventor of Full Cycle Technology. We'll talk more about that. His zeal for tackling plastic pollution and food waste makes him a force for change. We talk about his company, Full Cycle Bioplastics, which quadrupled during the pandemic, going from 14 to, I think, 70-plus employees, $5 million in revenue, and over $15 million in investment capital, with more on the way in discussion now. We cover replacing petroleum-based plastics, funding R&D when you have no money, how to make money while saving the world, how to come back strong after leaving the company you started, and successfully working with family. It's a great show. Stay tuned. Before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to share with you another podcast I think you'll enjoy. I love being inspired by stories of extraordinary mission-driven founders. So that's why I think you'll really enjoy listening to Evolve, hosted by Brandon Stover. Brandon asks thought-provoking questions to unlock the wisdom of social entrepreneurs. And you get to hear guests like Madison Campbell and David Katz and a whole roster of amazing entrepreneurs who are solving the world's greatest challenges. So when he suggested we share each other's podcasts with our listeners, I was happy to do it. You can head on over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts to listen to Evolve with Brandon Stover. Jeff, welcome to Startups for Good. Thanks so much for coming on. Miles, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So plastics, how'd you get into plastics? Oh man, I got into bio much before I got into plastics. Uh, I, I did a lot of green engineering and a lot of fun stuff in that sense, which was basically getting bacteria to turn low value things into high value things. And it turned out that there was this really cool biopolymer that really is just a microbe fat molecule that they found in a biological wastewater treatment back in the 80s that... It put me into plastics. I was not a plastics guy before that. I was just a bio guy. And you were drawn in by the applications to improve the environment. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So effectively, I was, I was doing lots of engineering out in the world. You know, I was building anaerobic digestion facilities and things like that. And after I'd finished my master's degree in, in environmental engineering, basically bio stuff, I was living by the beach down in San Diego. Uh, and I was body surfing every day. I was building projects all over the place. So I could basically work from anywhere because I couldn't be in any of the projects all the time anyway. And I kept on getting hit in the face by plastic pollution, just floating in the waves down in San Diego, which was not ideal at all. And, you know, it's one thing to get hit in the face by seaweed. You sort of understand it. It's got a bit of a slime to it, but it's a little different to get hit in the, in the face by a plastic bag, especially once it's also got a bit of a slime to it. It, it feels a special kind of toxic. Uh, and so... I actually just decided to start applying what I had seen in engineering to that. So, you know, I had found out that this, this biopolymer could be made in academia and in school, 
And then I just decided to actually go after it and actually start solving big problems with my engineering degree rather than just building things that already existed. So I wanted to go into R&D and, and build a business around it. And that was, goodness, nine years ago. Yeah. So take us back to that moment. What was it that made you decide to want to be a founder? I've been building lemonade stands and building rain gutter cleaning businesses before I knew what a founder was. Um, and so I always sort of liked building things. The individual thing I was building didn't matter so much. I mean, I handymaned my way through two engineering degrees. So the physical stuff was always fun. The design stuff was always fun. But I also, I've always just had a bit of a strong personality and it made me an interesting employee. I could do the things and I'm you know tactful enough to, to still execute, but I never really, I never really liked it. Uh, in that sense. And when I was out making my own way and figuring out problems for the first time, that really tickled me. Uh, that put me in a good headspace for it. So the moment I knew I wanted to be a founder, I think it was in undergrad. I think it was in undergrad at, at UC Davis here in California, where I, I basically took a green engineering class and saw all the things that were possible. Like the idea of tunneling through the cost barrier and making a house that treats all its own water and has solar and actually sells power back to the grid. That sort of thing really, really tickled me in a way that I, it sort of opened my mind to what was possible and then made me want to build things to do it. So I guess it was always a little inherently in me, just from my parents. They both ran small businesses. Um, and then I, it just found its home and, and a natural fit in actually trying to use engineering to save the world and make money at the same time, because I think the two are very linked. But yeah, it's been an interesting one. So inspiration from your parents, the desire to build things being a bad employee and uh, wanting to save the world. It's a, and make money. It's a heady brew. It is. It's been, you know, it's led to some, some interesting moments over the years and, and, you know, trying to find the balance between those things. When I tell people I want to save the world and make a bunch of money, they, they sometimes think that those things are, are, you know, at odds. And I actually strongly disagree. I very strongly. I think the world's, the world got really jacked up when it became profitable to do that. And I think the way to, to fix the world is to make it profitable to do that. You know, that tends to spiral things in the right direction and make self-sustaining solutions. I think that is how you change the world. If you can change industry at large to do it. So the two align quite nicely. It allows me to be ambitious and, and, and chase my dreams and as well as just doing something that feels entirely good. And is that about the problem that you choose to solve or about how you do it? Absolutely both. You really have to understand that, that solving the problem is certainly the start. That's where you begin. But to, to do something that, that truly lasts and scales upward, you have to find a thing that solves the issue and makes money at the same time. So how you do it is tremendously important. Now, for me, I, I built circular systems. So I've found a way to do that. But I don't think that's the only way. That's just the one I did. Using one problem to solve another, like, you know, often is incredibly useful. I mean, I take food waste and turn it into bioplastic. Food waste is a huge greenhouse gas emitter and bioplastic is a huge polluter. Or sorry, plastic is a huge polluter. We're replacing plastic with this bioplastic that is entirely benign. So it's a very different thing. But when you use that intelligent design and you use the things that are in place now as issues to solve the other, I find that's very powerful. But to, to your question directly, it really is about choosing to solve the problems. There's a million ways to actually do it. And then, you know, that's the, the fun of the entrepreneurship road is finding that pathway, finding the market fits, finding everything in the middle. And then, of course, developing the tech itself in this sense. When you were early stages, you had the belief that this technology could be developed, but there was still 
some science risk even more than tech risk, right? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, the, the biopolymer I make is called PHA and it's been around, again, they found it in the 80s. They found out how to do it. They found out basically how to get bacteria to, to make it, but they never really were able to do it cost competitively or make it into anything commercial. You know, people have wanted this thing for a long time. So there was, there was fundamental science that said it could be possible. It's not like I invented the polymer. I really, I found a way to actually make it at scale and cheaply from sustainable feedstock. So there was some science risk, but I would say that there was more tech risk than science risk in that okay. sense. And how did you convince investors that you would be able to get it to work? Oh my goodness. Uh, find out what they want and give it to them. It is an, an interesting road to build a business like this, especially with no background. So, I mean, I have an engineering background, but that was literally all I had. I did not have any entrepreneurial experience other than the occasional lemonade stand and, and nothing else. What I did was I was like, okay, how do I get from one or from, from zero to one in some senses? Getting money for something that doesn't exist yet is tough, especially if you haven't exist, invented something else that you know that you did, did that already. So starting from zero is really finding out who can work on these things that doesn't need money. For me, that was academics. So what I did was I went to academics and I started offering to write grants with them because that, that way they could get that fundamental research done and I could get my prototyping money. I pivoted that and found out that there's a lot of groups that actually donate to universities and academics to keep them locally interested. So I actually worked in Fresno. Uh, I went from San Diego, which is by the beach and, and lovely, up to Fresno, which is much more rural and agricultural. Uh, it's a little different because that's where I found uh, some, some groups that were doing it. I worked with Fresno State University. Uh, I found a professor who was willing to work with me and you know didn't need money. He was happy to write grants with me because they do that. Uh, and then he also introduced me to a large industry there that actually likes to fund the university. So he basically, you know, as a philanthropy, those philanthropy dollars are going toward education and basically keeping, you know, educated folks in that area. And so that was a, a large peach processor in Fresno, California, which had a bunch of food waste and had a need for plastics. So what I did was I said, okay, large peach processor, I will go ahead and give you what you need. I'll find a, a use for your peach waste, which is contaminated and can't be fed to animals or people. And I'll keep this university doing what you were going to pay it to do anyway, which is educating students and giving them projects to work on. Except with this, you'll actually get the upside of if it works, you'll get you'll have some equity in the business. It'll be an investment rather than a philanthropy donation. Um, and that worked out fine. I got my first six figures uh, from there, which was not enough to pay myself, but it was enough to build some prototypes uh, and, and build everything that way. So, you know, it's a levering up of, you know, academics who just want to write grants into people who like to fund academia. From there, we got to deal with the U.S. Department of Agriculture to, again, write more grants. And that that was when, after we had that proof of concept, we uh, I brought in I brought in a venture capital fund who had no idea how to vet my science, though I did have, you know, fundamental proof that I had done what I said I was going to do from my prototypes. And then I basically leveraged academic or I guess in this case, government um, laboratory PhDs in a presentation saying, okay, I'm going to present to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. They're going to bring 13 PhDs in a room and basically decide if they want to work with me and write grants. So I brought a venture capitalist to that room and got the science equivalent of a, of a standing ovation from the PhDs, which was enough technical vetting for the early stage venture to get involved. And this was, you know, this was in 20, 2013. 2013, early 14. So there wasn't nearly as much money in the space as there is now. So this was a, a harder lift in the, the clean space. 
And that actually worked. You know, if you can find the way to, to get the de-risking, to get the funds, to, to lever up back and forth, you can get there. It just takes time and a lot of understanding what people value and, and you know, leveraging those different stakeholders to give them, give them what they want and get what you need. Wow. Thank you for walking through that in detail. That is a masterclass right there in how to use the academic environment to do R&D. Thank you for, for that detail. I'm curious, how do you end up owning the IP afterwards? You negotiate strongly up front. And so, you know, you walk in with your ducks in a row as best you possibly can. With the academics, I was willing to give them things to work on that were outside of my, what I'll call my core IP. Like I didn't want them working on exactly what I was doing. I wanted them working on novel things on the peripheral. Um, still useful, still interesting for academia, but not gonna, not gonna get in my way on actually having something that can be commercialized and actually rolled out without you know, everyone having a stake in it. And so we did it that way. We, we kept the core IP and we focused their efforts on the other pieces. That was true for both, both the Fresno State work and also the US Department of Agriculture work because they're very similar in that sense. And so you kind of focus what they're allowed to work on and you agree on upfront those different things. And then you keep your, your current work and staff on the current investment side, on the stuff that's touched by those. So you, you basically have to be intentional about the whole thing as you go forward there. And then from there, we worked into industry a little bit more heavily. We worked with a large tech company that I don't think I can say the name of out loud uh, just yet to build a demonstration facility in Mountain View, California. And we negotiated a similar intellectual property piece there where we kept our core IP, uh, which is really the key there uh, in, in all of that. So in terms of this initial customer, they were really buying in a big way and making an investment to build a plant, you're saying? Yeah, a demonstration plant. So it was a 10x scale up, which is normal to tech scaling for bio. Uh, it was a 10x scale up out of our USDA pilot, it basically laboratory pilot, not a bench top, but a pilot into this 10x scale up. And they were, yeah, they were investing in that. But in that, you have to find out, again, It's a, this is a very similar thing where you find out what they need, what they want and need, and then you give it to them and ensure you get what you need. So it's, I mean, that's a fundamental philosophy of business right there, of course, and it has very different details in every application. But we found out that we could help them take care of all of their organic waste from a certain facility and then create a compost residual that then goes out to the to farms and then grows more food that they can put back into their, into their operations. And then we can also basically, even if this didn't work, they would have all of their food waste taken care of and then they would have this, this moonshot idea of being able to actually make their plastic packaging from the other residual, which is our PHA production. So we basically guaranteed that they would succeed, at least in some bare level of meeting their operational needs. And then we threw on the, the if this works, obviously you get much, much more. So that's, that's the fundamentals of these things. If, you, if it's only a shot in the dark and you're not offering value the whole way through, it's a much harder sell. Uh, and that's that's the way you transition to industry, in my mind. Is find, you have to find out what they value and then give it to them. They needed a use for their food waste, a best use. And have a downside scenario that is not that painful. Exactly. Maximize the upside and limit the risk. I realize that's a fairly generic thing to say, but the way that you apply it means everything. And how's it gone, this pilot? Oh, it's going incredibly well. Um, there will be announcements here soon for, for that partner and others uh, over the next while here. But uh, yeah, we're, we've basically built out our entire demonstration facility in early 2020, late 2019, early 2020. 
and we are going to commercial scale now. So we actually, we're in the process of buying a brewery, which during the coronavirus pandemic shut down as a keg business and shut down, you know, most keg production because all the bars were closed and all of the parties were off. And so we, we are ended up buying a brewery to do another 10x scale up out of our laboratory. And then we're going to commercial scale now. So we're continuing to work with this partner as well as others at, toward building these commercial scale facilities. But the way a tech business grows like this is you know, once you're taking all the risk of technology off the table, meaning that you, once you're at commercial scale and you've validated for all the world to see and all the investors to see that the costs make sense, that the quality makes sense, that everything is, is what it needs to be, then your tech business is ready to roll out in a big way. So we are, we are bordering that at this point. We have lots of big work done with all the big partners that are going to buy our PHA. And we have, you know, as well as the, the tech company I mentioned earlier, and we're, we're rolling out commercial facilities all over the place. So we're going to be building one in New Zealand uh, under a license agreement. We're going to be building one in the Bay Area here with some of the local municipalities, as well as uh, potentially this tech partner and some others. And then uh, all, all the big food companies love us, which is kind of fun because we can turn their food waste into their food packaging, which is a unique circular economy model to us. So they'll be getting involved as well, which is great. So things are going well. Once you get those demonstration pieces, you can sort of continue to add on and continue to raise money at better valuations. And it's that upward spiral that everyone loves to see. Wow, that does sound great. And, and talk about uh, the fundraising a little more. How's how's that been going? Uh, fundraising is so interesting. It's been it's been so curious over the last while. Uh, the thing about building science that no one understands is it's really hard for them to get comfortable with tech risk. So we're doing something that's non-traditional. It's not traditional biotech because it's sort of got a wastewater treatment style stint to it, but it's also not wastewater treatment in that same way. So it's been really curious finding out who and what are the best draws for the market. You know, everyone understands basic tech, but materials is basically deep tech. So it takes a long time. It's usually very capital intensive. And so the, the number of investors that want to work in that space is limited. You know, every investor likes software. It's quick iteration time, quick turnaround, easily scalable. You know, big, heavy infrastructure is not quite the same. So again, you'll sense a theme here. What I did was I found the people who like that weakness, the people who build big, big infrastructure and have a lot to gain by doing that. I went to project finance firms, groups that build big solar, groups that build geothermal plants, groups that build the big, heavy infrastructure and people who work, like to work in converting those first commercial scale facilities. And I went to them and said, okay, you, you obviously want to build lots of these new things. If you invest in equity now into the, the business, then you'll have access to some of the deals for building these big infrastructure projects later. That way they have more to gain than just their investment. So that strategic layer of having more to gain than just, you know, just if the company works, my equity goes up is, is quite important, frankly. And that's a good value add that we found. So we were able to use those as sort of anchors to get where we are today. And of course, you know, fundraising in the, the angel sense and, and doing all the traditional fundraising in that sense is good, but we've had more of that than we have traditional venture investment. And we're transitioning to that now, but that's only because the tech is much more understood. <laughs> you have to find the people who are willing to, who have more to gain and are willing to take bigger risks uh, on technology than traditional. What can you share about the names of investors or the amounts? What can I share about the names of investors and amounts? I I'm not actually sure. I'll have to look. Um, I think they would be fine with it, but I don't want to to basically say that they're equity stakes. Understood. So that, understood. Uh, yeah. What else can you tell us about the business scale, um, customers, employees, any other metrics? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So we're just we just crossed seventy full time employees over the pandemic. 
we had a very interesting time where I think we had 14 employees at the beginning of the pandemic, or maybe we were at 17, something like that. And we we found a niche, even even throughout the adversity throughout the pandemic. We basically uh, quadrupled, quadrupled, and we're only growing faster and faster. But once our demonstration facility came online, we basically just started staffing up like crazy, and we were able to take significant more uh, investment. So we're doing our Series A now, which is hilarious that it's we founded this in 2014. So seven years seven years in, we're doing our Series A. But uh, we've raised 15 million to date, 70 employees, about 5 million in revenue to date and, and moving up from there. And we have contracts with many of the big food companies. Um, we're working in fashion as well, making a polyester replacement for fashion. Uh, so making fibers for clothes and things like that. We're getting into 3D printing, cosmetics. You know, PHA, the, the biopolymer that we make can be used to replace polypropylene, polyethylene, and polystyrene, which is 70% of the world's $700 billion plastics market. So it's got a quite, quite a many, a large number of applications, uh, and it can be used for almost everything. So focus has been really interesting for us. But, you know, we have a, a thriving R&D team that works on application sets, a group that works on operations, a growth team. We're, we're building up and out uh, and getting ready for that commercial transition as we build our first few commercial scale facilities. So the company is, I mean, thriving throughout all of this, which is fantastic. Yeah, that's exciting. That's amazingly fast growth in terms of the number of people. And, and that must be a challenge in and of itself. I'd, I'd love to chat about that more. But first, a little bit more about the, on the product, because you were talking about replacing 70% of the usages. Don't just listen, get engaged. I host a giving circle to support startup tech nonprofits. Why do they need support and why is it hard? Well, think about all of the challenges of a nonprofit startup where only 2% ever make it to more than 10 million in annual budget and all of the challenges of a tech company in building a team, understanding users, figuring out what to build and architecting the right product. So why does it matter? Well, think of the established large tech nonprofits that impact your life. Mozilla makes Firefox and other important internet infrastructure. Wikipedia collects and distributes knowledge. Code for America makes our government work better. Code.org and Khan Academy teaches us all. In healthcare, Medic Mobile powers living goods and other local community healthcare workers. So go to startupsforgood.com and click on Giving Circle to find out more. I'm wondering, do customers have to change their tooling or otherwise use it any differently? Or can they just plug in this new polymer and away they go? Yeah, great question. So for us, there's we we make key grades of PHA of these of this bioplastic. And it can, you know, we're basically you make the resin, then you mix it with stuff to make a compound. That compound can then go through one of the machines. And so every machine has different things uh, in different pieces. There's extrusion, there's blow molding, there's thermoforming. I mean, there's all sorts of different ways to make plastic products out of, out of this resin. And so what we do is we make these grades that are as close to a drop-in replacement as you can get. So petroleum plastics generally have, they have higher melting temperatures than bioplastics, like the, the biopolymer that we make. And so you are able to use the same exact machine but you do have to change the, the temperature setting on it, which is not a, a large adjustment. We basically provide all that information on the package with the resin in that sense to, to let them do those things. But it is effectively a drop-in replacement through existing manufacturing infrastructure. Which is great because sometimes you hear this argument that we're going to have to keep petroleum around for plastics, if nothing else. 
And you are making sure that's not true. Oh, absolutely. And we're, of course, not the only ones working on, on biopolymers and replacing that petroleum plastic. But, but yeah, we are absolutely making sure that's not true. We, are, we can put all of that infrastructure to work doing basically amazing carbon sequestration for polymer work, making a truly carbon negative product out of what was petroleum-based plastics applications. So, I mean, it's, it's pretty fantastic. We're, yeah, we're, we're very happy with where this has gone and we are absolutely trying to replace petroleum, but, you know, giving the people who actually currently do that manufacturing a new material to work with allows all those same applications and use cases to still be in place, you know, getting people to change their behavior and rather than just changing the technology that we use is hard to do. It's essential. And education is a huge piece of that. But if you can actually change the, the technology to allow for a drop in replacement, you can keep people doing all the useful things that they do. Plastics are very useful. They're also toxic, but we didn't know that going in. So I don't blame people for building these plastic materials, but now we can do better. That's the whole point. You can have those same use cases and those same applications without all the harm. That's and the end how, is the, how is the end user cost trending right now? Uh, the end user cost is trending down uh, effectively. So we are, you know, all bioplastics are generally more expensive than petroleum-based plastics. That has been the case over time for everything. And so, and not just that, but they usually have worse characteristics. PHA, the, the plastic that we make is not actually, or the bioplastic we make is not actually, I mean, we're not the first ones to do it. There's large PHA producers on the market now, but they have a very tiny percentage of the market share for plastics because of that cost issue. That being said, you know, as we get to scale, because we have a low to often negative cost feedstock, meaning we get paid to take the organic waste that goes into our system because people are paying to get rid of it right now. And because we have a, a low operating cost system in the middle of that, we actually expect that we'll be able to go from, you know, at our first facility competing directly on cost with the other PHA producers who do it very differently and have, you know, use canola oil as feedstock, which is $700 a ton. We expect to go from directly competing on cost with them to directly competing on cost with petroleum-based plastics as we move forward. Our mature commercial facilities with the economies of scale that comes from any large materials outfit as it's scaled up, we expect to be producing at less than 60 cents per pound, which is the cost of the cheaper petroleum-based plastics now. You know, that's revolutionary in the market. And that's because we're using this problem-style feedstock, which people are paying to get rid of, that organic waste. It really does move the needle in a big way. And that is how you intelligently design a new system to be disruptive. At least how we Yeah, that's very exciting. That growth that you talked about, you know, quadrupling the staff, that sounds like a lot to manage. And I notice your title is not just co-founder, but also co-CEO. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on managing the team. Oh, absolutely. Uh, growing pains are an interesting thing that you will experience throughout. And I have seen several things I didn't really expect uh, in growing the team. I expected growing pains and I expected to find things I didn't know, but it's a really interesting thing in startup life. And this is, you know, irrelevant. It's not specific to us, but it happened to us. It's a really interesting thing in finding the people that are really good at early stage startups, the people who are multifaceted, like to wear lots of hats, don't necessarily have deep expertise in anything, but are happy to dive in and figure it out. Those people, you have to prep them for transition to a much broader business that can afford talent who's done it a million times. And so as you scale a business like this, you bring in you know, subject matter experts in specific things. You now have a finance head who has done project finance. You now have a chief revenue officer who has built and run thousand person organizations. 
You, you have all these specialists that can help you grow and help the business business get exactly what it needs. And so the people who got you there often feel that because they used to re report directly to the CEO or they used to work and be the head of that thing, that they can actually you know, grow at the same pace as a business that's quadrupling over a year or a year to a year and a half. It is a really interesting thing. And we've, we've tried to grow everyone. We've offered all sorts of trainings, coaches, uh, you know, uh, additional education. We've offered everything to do that. But it's really an interesting disconnect in being able to grow early stage employees into mature leaders at the later stage. The skill sets are very, very different. And so it's, it's really interesting to see that. And like, I have good friends who ended up leaving my business on good terms, of course, but because, you know, they, they no longer felt like they had the same upward mobility. And that's frustrating. Frankly, I didn't want that. I've never tried to get rid of them in any way, shape or form. It's just really frustrating for those things. Those are the things that get you that you don't expect. And it's, sometimes it's just a sentimental thing, but it is, it's a little tough. I had an early employee tell me once that this person would not be there. They knew themselves well enough that they liked the early stage. And they said, you know, when this gets above X number of people, I don't remember if it was 50 or 100, I'm going to leave. And I, I like the early stage and I want the company to be successful. I hope it grows, but I don't want you to be surprised. And I thought it, it, it showed a remarkable level of self-understanding and foresight because that dynamic does play itself out as you described. Oh, that makes perfect sense. That level of self-awareness is incredible. Kudos to that person and, and to you for finding and working with them. Everyone should be doing you know, their, their work in their zone of genius, the stuff that they're good at and lights them on fire. And good Lord, the company transforms so many times that it's really hard to stay in your zone of genius throughout. Uh, it, can be, it can be tough in that sense. Now, you also, you mentioned um, the co-CEO factor of the business. And honestly, one of the absolute keys to our success is actually that it is run by me and my twin brother, uh, Dane. So Dane is our other co-CEO and co-founder. Uh, he's, he's our technical genius. And so I like to, to jokingly say that I'm the business twin and Dane is the, the science twin. We both have deep technical backgrounds and we both invented the technology. And also he helps a, a bit on the corporate governance, of course. But you, know, you, you can only have one person accountable for each job. And so we sort of specialized in that way. That sort of, in some senses, makes this a bit of a family business, and it's helped us, you know, treat everyone like family and push everyone forward in that way, keeping it light and fun, but also, you know, also making all the progress and, and pushing forward. So that sort of bond at the top has helped tremendously. I don't know that it would work in many other situations. Um, I've heard, you know, mixed reviews from investors and things like that around that general structure. But for us, it, it just plays so well. And it's really helped us throughout with the sentimental stuff and the, the technical stuff. So it's working well. Have you gotten pushback from investors saying that it doesn't make sense for them? Uh, only ones who don't know us. As soon as uh, I have current investors uh, who have watched all of this happen and been involved in some of the, the interesting, you know, harder times in the business, because every business has them, and they will swear by it, you know, night and day. But anyone from the outside who doesn't have any context on it, yeah, they say, oh, but who, how do you decide things? They go through all the traditional questions. How do you decide things? What happens if you disagree? All these fun things. Um, and so, you know, they have questions. I wouldn't say that once we answer their questions, they still have concerns. But uh, initially, they they tend to focus on on downside risk, which is totally understandable from an investment point of view. Now, you touched on some hard times. Are there any's that you want to share? Oh man, uh, yeah. So we brought in we brought in some some experienced leadership early on at the behest of some of our investors, because, you know, I was a 20 something engineer. And so, you know, trying to, to do that 
there were some, some disagreements that didn't go too well. And I actually ended up quitting this business for about a year and a half and went and traveled the world and built a venture fund and did all sorts of fun stuff. Sorry, venture firm, uh, not a fund. And yeah, it was a it was a really interesting road. And then I was actually requested to come back by several of the stakeholders when when it turns out I had been more correct than incorrect on, on my assessments of the situation that ended up having me leave to begin with. Those things are interesting times. That put strain on the re- relationship with my brother and I. It, you know, the business was fine because we had set it up to the point that it was you know on autopilot through that pace. But when I left, it basically stopped growing. It stopped driving in the same way. And there was many concerned parties that that wanted me back in. And so I did come back in. But yeah, these are never straightforward paths they, ever, I, I think. Uh, I, would, I would be shocked if, especially for a first-time entrepreneur or set of entrepreneurs, having to, to go through and learn all your lessons and, and have it not take you on wild tangents would be something else. <laughs> and we've certainly had ours. So it is interesting. And that's one of these things about working with family, working working with friends, working with people that you care about. You know, sometimes the feelings can get involved and it's it happens to, to everyone at some point. Enough adversity, if you're not communicating well or if you're still still growing and not yet self-aware enough to, to see your part in things, oh goodness, it can take you down a path. Thank you for sharing that. Is there any lesson learned or advice that you would share with others who are thinking about working with close friends or family? Yeah. I would absolutely say that you need to understand yourself and the other person fairly well. You need to put in process and procedures around communication and and feedback that need to happen regularly. This needs to be things that even in the good times, you are doing it. Because if you do it in the good times, you build good habits and you can do it in the bad times. But if you can't give each other feedback, or if you're not, you know, mature enough or self-aware enough to to be able to take that feedback and actually use it to better yourself, because feedback truly is a gift, um, then you're, you're going to have a hard time. So it, it depends. Not to say that you know, businesses should only be started by perfect people. That's not the case at all. It's the people who can learn and be open uh, that really need to get after it. it it's going to test you in ways that you will not see <laughs> over and over again. So be ready for that. And not everyone can take the whole journey. Some people have have things uh, early on that they're good at and later on they're not. It will be a journey and it will not always be the same people and it will not always feel good. That That is the overall piece here that needs to be understood up front. And it's worth doing even if it doesn't feel good. Yes. The hard things are the most worth doing. And you know, a little hardship tends to grow people anyway. So, I mean, I'm a I'm a much stronger person than I used to be after after leaving this company and going off to do my own thing again. And it made me even more functional when I got back. That's one of one of the reasons we've grown so much. I'm certainly not all of them by any means, but yeah, it is worth doing. The hard conversations are absolutely worth having. Starting a business is absolutely worth doing. It has its trade-offs. Like you often trade, you know, actual dollars in 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 earning for later future earning potential or you know, equity value or anything like that. And most startups do fail. I started this business with the intent that, you know, I didn't know if it would succeed and that would be okay. I wanted to learn. I wanted to grow. I wanted to, to do good things with my time. It did go well, but it also went very poorly in the middle. So, you know, it has its, these things all have their moments and it is a journey worth sticking with if you can. But, you know, you as a person grow, grow more, even if you fail, which is useful because then you could do it again and again and again. And do That's you intend the- to, do you intend to start other companies in the future? Oh, absolutely. I don't think I'd be able to stop myself. I, I spent so long building these skills and this understanding of value and you know how to actually scale businesses through. I will always be advising businesses at the very least and, and helping people uh, in that sense. But 
there's a certain part of me that really likes the journey uh, in these things. And so if I, you know, if I hit a, a home run and, and you know, didn't ever have to work again, I'd probably still do it. <laughs> I'd probably still do it because frankly, I love the idea of building technology that saves the world. It is so much fun. It is all the ambition, all of that journey, and it feels good and people cheer you on the whole way through. It is so very rewarding that I will always be involved in that world. And I hope I'm always still founding things, frankly, because that is that is like being a gladiator in an arena and it is very exciting. And so even if I had the money to throw at things and just fund other people doing it, I would do that, but I would probably still want to be involved myself. Are you still investing? I have put a pause on that actually, just because I have been so focused on this business. Forex growth, I, I just didn't have time for other projects over the last year and a half. I will be again. I find helping entrepreneurs via investment and you know helping them do deals and, and doing things like that, helping them get the things that they don't currently yet know how to do. I find that, find that so satisfying. And that's how I like to invest. I think the investors work for the businesses they invest in. And that was my motto uh, and my philosophy when I was uh, doing investing on that front. I still have my, my venture partners and all those guys who I wanted to work with over that period. So I will be doing more investing, but I, I have had to knuckle down and focus uh, to CEO this one all the way through. And how do you balance your time within the business? You know, that's been an evolving process. It has, it began with me just pouring time into everything. I mean, it's, it's over, over this long, it's been interesting, but over the last couple of years, even going from that 14 to the 70, it was a lot of me being involved in details over, over and over again throughout every piece of the business, finance, growth, tech, you know, people all, all the way through and, and dealing with everything. And I realized that was never going to scale. And so I started hiring heads of, whether they're VPs, whether they're directors, whether they're C-levels, heads of every function that I could get my hands on and realizing full well that I could build something that I didn't have to keep my hands on all the time. That would be something that was truly scalable, that I could actually maneuver and that I could take my eyes up off of the things that were day-to-day -day operations and start looking for opportunity in the world for the business. Oh my goodness, what a transformation. If you can get eyes up instead of eyes down by actually getting the people who have expertise and specialty in every area, and then of course, still providing oversight. Good Lord, there's always, always strategic problem solving and strategic oversight to get involved in. But the more that you have capable hands in those roles, the more you can actually be opportunistic out in the market. And that is where some of the true magic comes from in, in building businesses. It, it's been, from my take, that's what I've found. And it's been sort of transformational over the last two years. Big shout out to my executive team. <laughs> yeah, but it's wonderful to have uh, a good team around you. What kind of opportunities have you been able to take advantage of because your eyes out? I, I built out a whole licensing model and sold our first license. So it, for this, this gets into sort of the, the technical detail, but I'll try and keep it bigger, bigger picture. Being able to scale our technology to the world, there's a lot of things that get in the way of that. There's infinite detail and infinite everything. For us, trying to deal with regulating bodies all over the world and building facilities everywhere there is organic waste, which is everywhere there is people, was a monumental and slow-moving task. That's like trying to boil the ocean. So we were able to iterate and find partners to actually act as licensees of our technology, which allows us to basically sort of scale closer, we as a tech company, scale closer to a, a software company in that sense. We sell a package as well as support rather than going and building ourselves. That means you know lower margin on a per facility basis, or sorry, lower lower revenue on a per facility basis, but the ability to scale out quickly really changed for us 
in a big way. We'll have multiple groups building facilities for us globally in their home markets where they already have political capital. They already have the ability to you know, pull food waste from landfill, get access to those materials, and then you know, change the way things are composted to best, to best account for end of life in all of these places. Being able to change the world all at once like that was something we wouldn't have been able to do uh, without, without being able to get me sort of eyes up or someone else to actually do that work, but I wouldn't have known to ask them to. <laughs> so it would have been a different thing. Um, on top of that, just a lot of the big partnerships we have and the big, the big opportunities in facility building and in uh, product applications. Yeah, seeing the big picture you're saying and, and being able to do the big deals. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it depends on what you're good at. My, my magic is, is finding opportunity. And again, the, whole, the reason we got here, which was finding out what people value and giving it to them. Uh, and finding out creative ways to do that. That has been my fundamental philosophy all the way through. And if I'm worried about, you know, people issues or, you know, something technical in the business, I'm not doing that. And that truly is my magic. I think that's a great place to wrap up. Where can people follow you online? Great question. So I, I personally keep a pretty low social media profile just because I've seen lots of things in those and it gets a little interesting, but full cycle specifically, we are at fullcyclebioplastics.com. Uh, we also have a Twitter. I think it's, ooh, I'll have to come back with that actually. Uh, I'll send it over to you afterward. It'll be in the, it'll be in the, the comments of the notes. And then there's a few viral videos of my brother and I from, from several years ago that were done by Uprox uh, that got like, 5 million views or something like that. Those are always good for a laugh and a, a time capsule, but that's about it. All right, people, if you're looking for a laugh, check <laughs> out those videos. Thank you so much, Jeff, for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Miles. Appreciate the time. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. Reviews really do help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and you can follow me on LinkedIn. If you are inspired today and want to join our giving circle, please do so on our website, startupsforgood.com. Thank you.